Father God, I thank you for this group of people here this morning. I thank you for the way that your grace abounds. God, for the way that your mercy was experienced for each one of us through understanding the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is why we are here this morning in celebration and to give thanks of what you have done on our behalf. So as we lift our voices in song, as we lift our hearts in prayer, and as we read through your word this morning, God, speak to us. We are here as your people. May your spirit rest with us in this place, and may you be glorified through our worship this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand as you are able and join me in our affirmation of faith? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Sings my soul. 
Thank you to both of y'all. Amazing job. Y'all did so good. Thank y'all for leading us in that worship. It's a time of our service where we uh, take up our morning offering and our tithe. And we do this for a number of reasons. We do this because God has commanded us to. And we do this trusting that God is bigger than we are. And that what gifts we bring, we do so in confessing that it is God alone who gives life, it is God alone who sustains life, and it is God alone who gives us everything that we have to have joy and to have hope in in this world. And we know that through these gifts, the ministry within the walls of the church happen, as well as the ministries outside of the walls of this church. We have missionaries all over the world that benefit and depend on what we give each week. We have school children that receive meals each week as a result of your giving and your faithfulness to God. So would you join me in prayer now as we pray for our morning offering. And if you will remember, the plates are up here on the kneeling rail and in the back in the narthex. If you'll place your gift in there when you leave. Father God, we thank you each and every day that you are a God bigger than our circumstances. We are so thankful that our life does not depend on what is around us, but it depends on who is within us. 
And because of the sacrifice that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in you above all things. And we know that our hope and our prosperity does not lie within the resources of this world, but in resources that you have given us in heaven. So this morning, as we give our tithes out of obedience and we give our offerings to give to you what you have given to us, we do so with expectation in our hearts and we do so with joy in our souls as we know that through giving, we become the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. We become the faithful followers of God in the midst of the world. So we pray that you would take each gift this morning, God, that you would multiply it for your glory. And that through this, somebody would come to know the love and the power of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
As we move into a time of prayer this morning, there are many people from within this own congregation that we need to remember in prayer. Um, Janine and Claude Bronner, Miss Jeannie Kirtner, and several others. We also need to remember the family of Hunter Midkiff. That is the grandson of Jackie Barker, who was a member here at this church for a long time. He unfortunately passed away from a heat stroke. He was a junior in high school. Uh, so if you remember Jackie, please reach out to her and let her know that you were praying for her and that you were mm-hmm. thinking of her. And then we also need to continue to remember Robbie Godfrey, who is a, a member of this community, uh, is currently on a ventilator in Jonesboro. There's a lot going on in our world that we need to be in prayer for, a lot of people that we need to be able to intercede for and to bring before the presence of God. So would you join me as we do that now? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity that we are experiencing right now. The opportunity as imperfect people to come before the presence of a perfect and holy God to bring our joys, to bring our sorrows, to bring our praises, and God, to intercede on behalf of somebody else that needs you to intervene in their life. God, we lift up the families, not only in this church, in our community, but across the world that are suffering from this pandemic. God, that life has been turned upside down, and for some people, life will forever be changed. We pray that even in the middle of circumstances that you would fill them with your presence, that they would know that you are near and that you are real. And God, that even in the dark and brokenness of this world, that you do not abdicate your throne for the situations that are before us. God, we lift up our family members in this church who are experiencing the death of a loved one. We've had a lot of funerals lately. And God, we know that your peace is on their family members as they continue on to live this new normal life. God, we lift up the families of those who are struggling to figure out why they exist in this world. To try and figure out why they have to experience and endure all the hardships that comes with being a person in the middle of society. And God, we pray that as your church, we would be the face of Jesus Christ. We would be the example of the Savior that you sent to change the hearts and the minds of people. That people broken and torn apart by sin could be restored through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. That people once separated from their Creator could be redeemed and renewed to understand and know the God who loves them and created them. So God, as your people, we join together to worship you, to remember the prayer that your son taught us to pray as we pray those words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we are continuing on with our story of Elijah. This has been one of the longest series that we have been through, and we've still got a few more weeks left, but that's okay. That is okay. I've uh, got a buddy who is a pastor at a church, and they have been in the book of Luke for five years now. So hang out with me a little while longer. We're continuing on with Elijah's story, and we're looking at the way that this prophet of God had been called to reach an entire nation of people as they had been pulled away from uh, pulled away to uh, false gods and, and hollow promises um, by their king and by their queen. But we're doing this through the understanding of our own faith. And what happens when we become complacent in our relationship with God? And you know, when we started this story out, we started this series out, we realized that Elijah was a guy that came on the scene from out of nowhere. He was a nobody before he confronted King Ahab the very first time. We know that King Ahab was the worst king in Israel's history. And he followed a long, long line of kings, some of them which were not as 
not that good either. But this week, what I want us to do when we look at Elijah's story, what we're going to be able to do is we're going to be able to look at his situation and compare it to our situation. As the church of Jesus Christ in the middle of America, in the middle of the world, is the Elijah's situation very much different than ours? Is the thing that Elijah had been tasked to do very much different than what we have been called to do? If you've got your Bible with me, or if you've got your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to chapter 18. We're going to continue on in verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves. Cut it into pieces and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. And I too will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the one who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that's fine. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. And then call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave them, they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. And they danced around the altar, all the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them and he said, shout loudly for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking things over. Maybe he's wandered away or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and needs to wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed all over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until one offering, until, sorry, the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound and no one, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near me. So all the people approached him and then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood. Then he cut up the bull and placed it on the wood, and he said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned, and also on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time. So they did it a second time, and he said, Do it a third time. So a third time they did it. And the water ran all over the altar and even filled the trench with water. At the time for offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all of these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust. It licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and they said, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Then Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not even let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and he slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. And then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up, he looked and said, there's nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. And then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so that the rain does not stop you. And in a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So I will tell you, this is not the first, this is not the second, this is not the third, this is not the 80th time that I have talked about this passage of Scripture. This is one of the number one passages of Scripture that you use when you work with teenagers. One, to scare them when you want them to pay attention. 
And two, when you want to show them the awesomeness of God. And so as I read through this passage of Scripture, all the thoughts and all the times that we had traveled through this before when I was working with teenagers ran back to me. And my ADD kicked in and I had a, a, a few things that I noticed there's always that debate as is it is it descri- is it pronounced caramel or caramel and i realized i did it both ways in that reading and then i realized that elijah ran really 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 fast because it says that he ran ahead of ahab's chariot all the way back to to jezreel that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today i just wanted to share those facts with you as we get started so as we continue With Elijah's story, we see all these amazing things that God has had Elijah do. He has brought a boy back to life. He has stood in front of the king of a nation and called him out for the things that he was doing against God's will. And last week, he finally returned to the presence of Ahab and he calls him out once more. So if you can imagine the setting on Mount Carmel as Elijah is gathering All the people of Israel, just think about the crowd there. There's 450 prophets of Baal alone. And then all the nation of Israel gathered around. One man against all of those people. But Elijah was a smart dude. He was doing this on purpose. And as I was reading this and as I was making these notes, I began to wonder, did God send Elijah for the purpose of addressing this huge failure of Ahab and the queen uh, Jezebel as they were leading Israel away? Or did Elijah come from nowhere as a nobody to address the small discretions that Israel had made over a period of time? Because if you think about it, these are God's holy people. These are the people that God established a covenant with. These are the people that God made into a great nation. These are the people that God traveled through the Red Sea with. That God led them through the desert for 40 years by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. This is the same God that led people through the Jordan River during the flood season. That let them see the walls of a strong city come tumbling down. Who ate fresh manna every morning. These were the people that God had set apart to be His own people. But yet now they are being confronted, they are being addressed by this one individual who would stand up and say, you are doing this wrong, you are not living as God's people. And I wonder, how did they get to this point? We read that Ahab was Israel's worst king. But I doubt that Ahab came on the scene and overnight everything changed from these good, God-fearing, wonderful, holy people to the people that they were now in the setting that we're in. But if you would remember, it was Ahab's father who was also known as a bad king. It was his father who was also known as a bad king. And so for several generations, Israel had been under the leadership of someone who had considered themselves followers of God But in their practice and in their life, they were anything but. So for us as the American church, living as people in the world, in reality, we are in the same situation that Israel was. If you remember when God sent Israel into the promised land, He said to be careful, and I told you this last week, that the gods of the land do not become your gods. Be careful that their customs don't become the things that you hold dear. Be careful that their ways do not become the practices that you undertake. But we know throughout all of human history, we do a very poor job of doing the things that we should do. And a great job at doing the things we want to do. So that leads us to this place now where we see Elijah standing in front of the nation of Israel. You remember these are people who are still known as God's people. If you were to ask them who they were, they would say, I am an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. If you will remember at the beginning, I told you that Ahab still considered himself a follower of God. And so I think that Elijah was sent on this mission, not just to call out King Ahab, and not just to call out Queen Jezebel, but I think Elijah was sent with a greater mission to help Israel understand just how they had gotten to this point 
where they were calling themselves the people of God, but yet they were living like the rest of the world. And you see that right there in verse 21, when Elijah approached the people and he said, How long will you follow him? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And it says that the people didn't answer him a word. Now, I have learned through all my years of great wisdom and experience. That's, that's a joke, by the way. But I have learned that when people don't answer you, it's either one, they really don't know. Two, they don't want to say because they know they're wrong. They know that if they tell you the answer to what you have just asked them, they're going to incriminate themselves. And so I think here when Elijah says, look, how long are you going to dance around between worshiping God and claiming God to be your God, but then following the customs and the practices of Baal? For three years you have lived in a drought, but yet you are still claiming this God of rain and this God of storm and thunder to be your your God, the one that you worship, the one that you devote your lives to. How long are you going to dance around? And I think the people didn't answer because they wanted both. They wanted to be able to claim the justification and the authority that comes with associating yourself with the one true God. For us in America, in the Bible Belt, we want the authority, we want the justification... We want all the good things that come with associating ourselves as a Christian. But then they didn't answer because they also wanted the things that come with the freedom when you worship Baal. You see, people worship idols because they like the things that they can do freely. You know very well that a relationship with God has things that you can do, things that you're supposed to do, and the things you're supposed to run like crazy from. But you see, with Baal, a lot of these wild and crazy festivals that they did, a lot of these free practices and things that they were able to do if they worshipped Baal, they weren't able to do when they worshipped God. So they didn't answer, and I think it's because they knew that they had been incriminated. They knew that they still claimed that relationship and that authority from God, but they knew that if they proclaimed God as the one true God then they would have to sacrifice all these personal things, these desires, these ways of living that they wanted, that they knew went against the things of God. And are we not like that now in the American church? Where we choose to claim that we are a Christian and we choose to say that we are a Christian. If you remember Elijah's situation, it was not a good place to claim that he was a follower of God. If you remember last week, we talked about Obadiah, Ahab's chief officer of the court, who had secretly been serving God and faithful to God throughout these three years of drought, who had hidden the prophets of God, but yet nobody in Ahab's court knew that he was a follower. And then Elijah calls him and he says, look, you're going to have to confront Ahab, tell him I'm back, it's time for business. And Obadiah was faced with that situation. I've been doing okay now as long as I've been able to be in secret, but now everything's got to come out in the open and it may cost me my life. You see, that's where the Israelites were. That's how they had gotten to this point, was that they knew if they confessed God, they would have to give up their life. The idol that they had come to know and they had come to like and they had come to worship. In reality, they weren't worried about the long-term things that he did. They liked the freedom to do whatever they wished as they were doing it. Now, we don't worship Baal so much in the United States now, but we worship a lot of things that take priority over God. We worship a lot of things that require the time that God has said to be His. So in reality, where Israel is at this moment is not a whole lot different from where the church of God in America will soon be. You see, it didn't happen overnight. It was a generational thing. They made more concessions. Something that wasn't considered a big deal was loosened up on. And when that was loosened up on, it opened more room to something else, and then that opened something room to more else, and something else, and something else, until they got to this point where they were no more God's people than they were a tree growing on the hillside. So Elijah is a very, very smart dude. And if you haven't noticed that already, 
today's story is going to show you just how smart he is. And I'll tell you, my original intentions were to talk about how God came down in fire, how God took everything up, and God is a big God, God is an awesome God, and all those things. But I realize there's so much more to that story. If anything, that is the backdrop for the big things that God is doing. It says that Elijah confronted 450 prophets of Baal in Baal's home territory. If you remember, he was in the homeland of Jezebel, where Baal worship was the natural, national religion. Their culture was on Baal. And in the midst of a drought, Elijah confronts 450 prophets. The king who has led the nation of God away from worship of God. And he stands before them and he does something that I think is phenomenally important that we need to catch in this story. It says that he begins to rebuild the altar of God that had been torn down. If you remember, the prophets of Baal had at this point slaughtered all the prophets of God except for the ones that Obadiah had hidden in the cave. They had torn down all the altars and anything about worship to God they had driven out of the country. They didn't want God anywhere in the mix. But you notice it began at first when Ahab and Jezebel were okay with people worshiping God. As long as they understood that Baal was important. Do you remember when that started out? Well, you see, now we're at a point three years later where all the prophets of God, everything about God is to be wiped out, is to be demolished and done away with. But it says that Elijah began to rebuild the altar. And it says that he takes 12 stones. And he does so in order of each of the tribes of Israel. Think of the significance of that. When God named each of the tribes, He named each one of them for the purpose that they were given and for the job that they were going to do for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of their well-being. So as Elijah would place a stone, I imagine he would say, God, this stone I place for the tribe of Levi, the people that you have set apart to lead your people in worship to the temple. God, I set This stone for the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe that you have set to guide your people as they lead through the wilderness. I set this stone for the tribe of Simeon. I set this stone. I set this stone. So each person that is listening to Elijah as he is rebuilding this altar is remembering who they are. They're recalling things that they had obviously not thought of in a long time. That they came from descendant, that they're a descendant of a tribe of the people that God had set apart to go into the Holy of Holies and to intercede for their behalf in the presence of God. That their people were the ones that would carry the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat of God as God moved with them through the wilderness. That their descend or that they are descendants of the ones who walked across the Jordan River. That they are descended from the ones who marched around the walls of Jericho before the walls came tumbling down. And they remembered the stories that their grandparents had told them about how every morning they woke up and there were piles of manna outside their tent. And how God had sustained them for forty years in the desert and not one of their shoes had worn out. And miraculously, not, not one of their tents had gotten a hole in it. So as Elijah builds this altar and he begins to cut this bull up, which is not a small task. The people are remembering and reminiscing the things that they were and the people who they were called to be. And then Elijah does something that no Boy Scout survivalist outdoors person would ever do. When you try to build a fire, you don't have water anywhere near it. But it says that Elijah put the wood and he put the bull on the altar. And then he takes four jars and he begins to soak everything in water. Soaked it so much that the bull got wet. The wood was soaked and it even filled a trench around the stones. And we know what happened next. He says one time. He calls out to God one time. 
And he says, God, let your fire from heaven fall so that your people will recognize you and they will know that it is you who have turned their hearts back. And it says that the fire came down and it burned up the offering. It burned up the wood. But then God didn't stop there. It burned up the stones. And then it burnt up the ground in which everything was sitting. So when God had finished, after one request from his faithful person, there was nothing more than a hole in the ground. And the people had spent the last three years in worship to this Baal. And the people realized that for the last 60 to 100 years, that they had been making concessions in their commitment to God. That they had been making small little concessions in their decisions and in their daily life and in their practices that led them to the point where one man stood in front of them and confessed and called upon the fire of God and God was faithful to who they are and God revealed who He was in their midst. And then Elijah does something that by all standards we would say was a little overkill, was a little overzealous. Usually when you win a fight, you, you get your, your little robe and you get your water bottle and you, you walk out. But Elijah didn't do that. Instead, Elijah made sure that all 450 prophets of Baal were rounded up, taken down to the river and slaughtered. And you think, man, that's a little extreme, Elijah. Don't you? You already won the fight. Is, is this just retaliation for what they did to the prophets of God? Why did you feel the need to kill all these people? And I'll tell you why. Elijah realized that these prophets had already led the people of God astray one time. He realized that these prophets were the ones who had taken the people that walked across the Red Sea. That lived 40 years in the desert with provisions given to them every morning. That walked through the Jordan River that conquered a walled city, these were the people that were led astray by these prophets. And he knew that if they did it once, they would do it again. If you remember, it wasn't very long after Israel was in the promised land that the outside influence started getting them. We're weak. We're weak individuals in and of ourselves. We have a nature to do things that we look at in the immediate and go, that's good, I want that. So Elijah did what was necessary for the people of God. And you see, for you and I as Christians, for you as, I, as people who claim to know God, who claim to be the people of God, who claim to have the power of God within us, we have to do exactly like Elijah does. When we realize the problem in our life that is keeping our attention and our focus and our commitment away from God, we have to kill it. We can't lessen it. We can't put a damper on it. We can't back off. We have to kill it. Because there's going to come a time when we're weak. There's going to come a time when we're wandering and we're wanting something. And we're going to open that door just a little bit. You go to Alcoholics Anonymous, the number one thing they tell you is that you've got to quit drinking. There is no more social drinking that's going to be going on. You've got to stop, period. Because it is impossible for somebody who has a drinking problem to ever go back to where they don't have a drinking problem. And so you have to completely stop it. Before it ever gets out of hand. And that's the number one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous will tell you. It's the exact same way with sin. When the Holy Spirit reveals to us something within ourselves that is of sin, we have to kill it. We can't push back on it. We can't step back from it and reassess. We have to completely do away with it. Remember, Israel didn't get to this place overnight. Ahab was not such a good marketer. Jezebel was not such a good marketer that as soon as they got into the, the palace, they said, all right, we're going to worship Baal now. And everybody's like, okay, cool, whatever. It happened slowly by small concessions that they made in their daily life. When I tell you that it is imperative that we spend every day in the Word of God, I, I mean that. You remember Elijah stood in front of a king. He called out a king. It was the dumbest idea ever. But Elijah didn't do it based on the situation before him. He did it because he knew who his God was. 
He knew who God said that he was as a member of God's chosen and holy people. And because of that, he stood in his situation and he called a king who had led people astray back to the heart of God, back to the worship of God. You and I have to know who our God is if we are going to be the church of Jesus Christ in the middle of this world. You and I have to be willing and wise enough to understand the situation before us, but the fact that our God is bigger. You and I have to know who Jesus Christ is if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this world. Because otherwise we're going to be like Israel. Little small decisions every day. They're going to change who we are. They're going to change the understanding of whose we are. And then they're going to change what our purpose is as the people of Jesus Christ. And no longer is it important For our neighbor to be considered our neighbor. No longer is it important for the values and the standards and the morals and the ethics of God to be the things that we live by. But instead, we're going to take up things that look like the world around us. The idols and the false and hollow gods that surround us. And it's not going to happen overnight. But before long, we're going to look less and less like Jesus. Less and less like God. And more and more like the world around us. But we'll still claim the name of God. We'll still claim the authority and the justification that we have with being associated with God. But in reality, we won't be able to practice or observe any of that. So Elijah came not to confront a king and a queen who had pulled people away. But yet he came to confront people. People who had forgotten who their God was. People who had forgotten who they were. So if you're in here today, I imagine you're here because you heard about God. I imagine you heard about Jesus. And when you realize that Jesus Christ took your place that hung on a cross for your sins, the sins that had separated you from God and pulled you away from the one who created you for a purpose. And He made it possible where you could be in the presence of the Creator of all things. I imagine you appreciated that. Something about that welled up in your soul and you responded to that. And I imagine why that's, that's why you're here this morning. But I want to encourage you to don't be complacent in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not a Sunday morning only thing. It's not when the situation is right and it is a church sponsored function. But you are to be the people of God set apart, different than the world in the way that you act, the way that you think, the way that you speak, the moral code that you live by, the integrity that you deal with other people. Because you are a direct representation of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He said that we are to die to ourselves. We are to pick up a cross. Remember, that's not a pretty little wall hanging, but that was a sign of death and suffering. But you are to pick up your cross because our job is to redeem a world that is lost and broken in sin. And we cannot be complacent in that. We cannot be complacent in a commitment to the God who created us with divine purpose. So I want to challenge you as you go out this week. Are you complacent in your faith? Are you complacent in your faith? And when I ask you that, do you respond like the people of Israel? You don't want to answer that because you might incriminate yourself. You can say, I I plead the fifth commandment. I don't know what the fifth commandment is, do you? Are you complacent in your faith? Do you claim the name of Christ? Do you claim the authority of Christ? Do you proclaim the the expectation of of being a Christian in Bible Belt America, but are you living in worship and commitment and covenant with false gods? Sports, activities, 
pastimes, social functions. I don't know. Don't be complacent in your faith because it's not a cultural thing. It is not something that is to be thought of very lightly. Understand that you are the people of God. And because of Jesus Christ, you have been set apart from the world. Something that God considers holy and precious. And God has blessings to pour out on you. And God has a mission to give you much like he gave Elijah. But if we don't know who our God is, we're never going to do what we're supposed to do. So don't be complacent in your faith. Father God, we appreciate, we appreciate. That's such a cheesy and hollow word to think of all the things that you have done for us. How arrogant could we be if we responded to you by saying we appreciate it. God, when sin had killed our soul, when sin had torn us apart from the eternity that you had destined for us, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. And because of what he did on the cross on our behalf, you have made it possible where we can experience the fullness of who you are as the creator of all things. So God, may we not just respond by saying we appreciate you, but instead respond by saying, God, we give you everything that we have. Because of what you have done for me through Jesus Christ, may my life be given for every breath that I breathe for the rest of my days. To see that you receive glory in everything that I do and that other people come to know the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray over each person in here that has responded to Jesus. I pray over each person on the radio that has responded to Jesus Christ. That they would not be okay being complacent in their faith. And God, if they have never responded or understood or realized what Jesus Christ would do to them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would wash over them like a flood. God, may we as your people remember that we are descendants of your people. That people have gone for generations before us, lifting high and worshiping the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that you have called us as your holy and precious people to be set apart from the world. Not that we would look like the world, but that we would look like the good and wonderful Creator who comes in the midst of brokenness to restore us. So God, as we go out, let us not be complacent. Let us not be lazy. And God, let us not be satisfied. But give us a desire to know you more. To make you known with every fiber of our being. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
long time ago, a school took a field trip to the house of John Wesley. And they went to the room where John Wesley spent the, the years of his life going around sharing the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And they were told about two divots in the floor by the bed. And they said that is where John Wesley would pray every morning and every night. And he would pray that God would use him in whatever way was necessary. But that everything that he would do would be for God's glory. Well, as the teacher was taking the students back through the house, she noticed that one of the boys was missing. And so as she made her way back through the building, she found, kneeled in those same two spots on the floor, was that little boy. And she overheard his prayer and she said, he said, God, I pray that there would be a revival. And if you would allow it, let me be a part of it. That little boy grew up to be Billy Graham, who perhaps more than anybody else besides the Apostle Paul or Jesus Christ shared the name of Jesus and led more people to a relationship with Jesus than all the world. Elijah led the people of God in a revival. And he didn't do so because the situation was perfect. He didn't do so because everything was working in his favor. But he did so because he realized the job that God had given him. I will tell you since I've been here, my prayer has been that this church would experience a revival. Not that it's a dead church. But imagine what would happen if the people of God gave themselves as a sacrifice on the altar of God and allowed the fire of God to come down and to consume them so that other people would come to glorify God and call Him Lord. That's the mission that you have been given. That is what you have been called to do as the people of God. So as you go out this week, go out knowing that you go out in the name of God, the creator of all things, the giver and sustainer of life. And that you are able to go out in relationship with Him because of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for you on the cross. Who atoned for your sins and who redeemed you to the one that sin had broken. And that you go out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That you might be the hands and feet of Christ and the light of Christ in the darkness. Not when the situation is perfect. Not when everything is in your favor. But even if you have to stand up to thousands of people proclaiming the truth of God. Go out and don't be complacent in your faith. Because God has done everything for you. Amen.